if you can turn back to First Thessalonians, we'll be reading um, 2, 13 through 3, verse 5. And we also thank God constantly. Oh, yes, please stand. Sorry. Okay. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in, the, in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And now over to Psalm 34, verse 19, ending at 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you, Jeremy and Liz, and the impact you're having on the saints here. We, we praise God for you. Like many, I'd read the headlines this week, and be it both the west coast of Florida and then later the Carolinas, I saw how often the headline was bracing for impact, that the storm's about to hit, and there are preparations to be made for the big event that's about to happen. Now, I bring that up only because you might not think of faith in Jesus as being an impact sport, and we pray that it is never a physically impactful event, but no doubt our faith is one where we face a degree of hardship and trial. Today very much is about bracing for impact in the Christian life. We say probably know this theme more commonly as uh, suffering, or as the word comes up over and over again here, as affliction. But to be well aware of the role of suffering and hardship in the life of the Christian believer. And if you notice, you've been, we've been reading this letter together, just how often it comes up. If I may, you have uh, things open there to 1 Thessalonians. But take a look at 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6. And you became imitators of us 
and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What's the pattern? Belief and affliction. You flip over a page, 1 Thessalonians 2, and I'll read 13 and 14. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you know, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things as your own countrymen. See the same pattern again. They received the word, and then they suffered. You say again, uh, chapter 3 and verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distresses and afflictions. If you want a little bit more, 2 Thessalonians, again, flip a few pages, chapter 1, same church, remember. 1 and verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the church of, of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Next verse, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. You see the same pattern, they have believed and as a consequence of their belief, they have suffered and faced much affliction. Now I think this is alarming and quite counterintuitive because a lot of people say, well, if I believe in Jesus and, uh, you know, this is the, the right thing to do, which it is, then my life ought to be easy. But the pattern, certainly among this model church, is that they have believed and they have suffered as a consequence of their belief. And so what we're going to do is think a bit of how we interpret adversity in the life of the believer, what this could possibly mean for our church here in Comfy Avon, and then a way forward as to how we build each other up. So first, our passage today were to see that when we become Christ followers, say yes to Jesus, I need his help, I surrender to the true king, repent of my sins and come to him, that we're joining into a, a, a story uh, where suffering is a part of the narrative. That this is the long path of God's people and it should come as no surprise because hardship in anyone's life really doesn't start in the day-to-day -day difficulties, it starts way back. At the very beginning, of how our forefathers, our ancestors, uh, that when they rebelled against God, that each one of us was infected with the sin of selfishness and rebellion against our maker. In fact, all of creation is groaning. Now, you remember Adam and Eve made uh, in God's place with God's blessing. Say, that's what the kingdom of God is, being in God's place with God's blessing, people, place, and blessing. And instead of resting in that place of bounty and goodness, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve said, no thanks, we're going to do life on our own terms. We really don't want to come to God and uh, live within his boundaries, but rather we're going to claim morality for ourselves. We're going to do life on our own terms. And consequently, each one of us, right, like the, an infection with a 100% uh, rate of infection, each one of us has gone our own way, and the disaster is, is evident within the first few pages of the Bible. So here's Genesis 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And again, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
So it doesn't take long. God makes everything good. He establishes his people in his place to flourish under his rule and with his blessing. Each one of us have gone our own way. And as a consequence, over the course of many generations, the cumulative effect is that our world is one not as it ought to be, but under the weight of our rebellion, that creation itself is in rebellion. So when you say that's the starting point of uh, the, you know, our, our story, then suffering is part of the equation of being, being a human on this earth in this time. And don't you see that many faithful Christians, those who've walked faithfully with the Lord, can face very difficult things. It's one of the, 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 the things in pastoral ministry you see that sometimes the greatest trials come very late at life for the faithful follower. You know, I tell young couples, they're in their early 20s, you know, I'm never more inept than when I try to do pre-marriage counseling. You know, I'm like, the grace of this woman is how I've made it 11 years, but I'll, I'll give you what I got. Um, <laughs> but I, I look at the, you know, middle-class families, they're happy, they're in love. I'm like, look, even if you play by the rules, and I pray you play by the rules, so to speak, but even if you do, life has many sad things. Say, I watch older saints walk through life together, loss of bodily function. Say one spouse has dementia. One of the kids has a terrible illness. One of your kids is off the rails. Say things have not worked out the way you wanted. Say there's just tremendous difficulty and tough things in this life. Say even if you're, you're walking with the Lord, say it's going to come where you just say, wow, it's, it's hard and it's tough and I have this sense inside me that things are not as they ought to be. Say exactly, exactly. God made everything right, God's people in his place with his blessing. Each one of us has gone our own way. The cumulative weight of human rebellion over, over the last few millennia means that we live in a world where suffering and hardship is a part of the equation, and we anticipate God renewing all things in Jesus. More on that in a moment. But that's where we find ourselves from the starting point. Suffering is a part of the equation. Now, gloriously, wonderfully, God redeems a people for himself through suffering. Have you noticed each, when we were studying Exodus, how God works in the midst of human suffering, that he enters into the world and he's saying, actually, I, I'm buying back a people for myself. Anyone who believes on my, my son can come and be in reconciliation with me, and he's on his way to making all things right, that God has put the world right through the suffering of his son Jesus. You ever think, the worst possible thing, the, the most evil thing in the history of the world, was the torture and crucifixion of God's only son come in the flesh. God's, uh, the man of peace to put the world right comes into history. The most evil thing that could be done is that he was tortured and killed. And that's the means by which God's going to redeem all creation. That God enters into the story of suffering, that he's not indifferent or aloof to it. Say, well, you know, this is it, and kind of brushes his hands. But from the very beginning, he inaugurates a game plan of, of of restoration anchored in the person of Jesus through the event on the cross. And so we have a God who saves through the suffering of this world. And we're to see God's face always in light of the cross, right? You begin, this is why Luther the Reformer, that wonderful line, he says, in Christian thinking, you begin with the wounds of Christ. You begin at the suffering of the cross and then you see what God is doing. He's entered into our predicament, all the things that trouble us and disappoint us. 
and he's redeeming the world, and we see him coming in not as an indifferent person, but as an involved savior. Now, Paul himself suffered. Uh, You notice that in this letter how much of the great things that the Thessalonians are exhibiting, their faith, their hope, and their love. Chapter 1 and verse uh, 3, right, that they're a wonderful church. They're a model church. How was the church born? The church was born out of real hardship of the ministers. So if I hadn't mentioned it yet, right, to 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, that's where Paul gets beat up at Philippi, read about in Acts 16, he comes down to Thessalonica, he's run out of town there, say the church is birthed out of real difficult things. So the belief and the affliction and the Christian ministry are tied up in the pattern of suffering. So here, I think, is, is one of the key, key takeaways. You think the Thessalonians, like so many modern Americans, would reason like this. Well, wait a second here. We're the model church. We believed in Jesus only after, you know, a month of preaching. Uh, why is life so hard? Maybe there's nothing in this. I mean, maybe we're on the wrong track. Maybe there's nothing in this Jesus stuff. Well, how does Paul really respond? He's saying, your suffering is a sign you're on the right track. It's not a sign that you've, in this instance, done anything wrong. It's actually, you've really got it. You're, you're among the people of God. You see you're different. You're acknowledging Jesus as king. So their suffering actually becomes a badge that they're on the right track. Now, a distinction here. Some suffering, what we call punitive suffering, is the suffering we incur for uh, the, the consequences of sinful actions. So here's what some Christians will say, well, I believe in Jesus. They'll go out and there's a pattern of sin in their life and then they bear the consequences and then they'll say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. Say, no, that's punitive suffering. That's suffering built into the moral economy uh, at God's, God's created order. Say, so we're not talking here about suffering from the consequences of our sin. We're talking about the stigma and the difficult things that come in life when we repent and turn to Jesus as our Savior when we're those kinds that make a big fuss about Jesus, you know, or one of those kind, you know, one of those born-again types that, you know, is really all into this Jesus stuff. The general stigma that comes with those kind and all that can come with it in the different contexts throughout church history, that's what we're talking about. And Paul says if you're in that position, you're a part of the big story. So friends, maybe you're here, you're suffering today, and that, that theme from the culture is starting to leak in to say, well, maybe I'm Maybe there's nothing in this. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Or could it be, no, you're following Jesus and the hard things are a part of what it means to be a follower of his. Now, many a preacher, you see, will distort this because it sells incredibly well. Uh, What I mean is, if you come to our church and you give money and you do what the pastor wants you to do or whoever wants you to do, then your life's gonna be really good. You can have your best life now. That kind of slogan, plays very well in America. It's just not biblical. The biblical pattern is believe on Jesus and you're afflicted. Believe, affliction is a cost, but it's a joyful cost as again, we'll see. So point number one, Paul's trying to get them to see that when you become a Christ follower, 
that there's a degree of hardship, a stigma that comes with that, that at, at various points will, will cost you. Now, what about verses 15 and 16? Now, no doubt you were stirring a bit when, when, when this was read, right? I'll start in actually in verse 14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. Remember, they're largely Gentile converts because they've turned from idols. So they have suffered from Gentiles in Thessalonica as they did, the churches in Judea did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. You say, now this, you know, you take this thing out of context and uh, jump all over you. You say, what do you mean? The Jew, you know, Jews killed Jesus and they displease every person everywhere and wrath is being poured out on them. Is Paul anti-Semitic? is the way the accusation comes. How could he say such harsh things? If I may, help us to appreciate what this passage is doing here and why it's not anti-Semitic. So first, as I want us to, as best we can, not to commit the historical fallacy of anachronism. So here's what happens. People will be reading their Bibles, if they are, or they'll hear this passage, and automatically they will read 1 Thessalonians 2 through the lens of Germany in the 1940s. They'll say, somehow those two, you know, uh, Paul is perpetuating the Holocaust. Now, no doubt that this passage has been used to do terrible things to Jewish people throughout history. It says, oh, terrible things happen to Jewish people, and this is something that's hijacked and used to that end. But when we say, somehow say, well, Paul here somehow intended for that action, then we're committing a historical fallacy. We don't want to read a 20th century event back into uh, a first century epistle. Moreover, please see this. When Paul states that a group of people, anywhere in the Bible, any biblical author says a group of people mistreated another group of people, it's talking really about the historical events. We never get the impression that we're to go and do likewise. Say, if you read other religious books, they'll say, well, there's this group and this group of people, and you need to go out, and you need to do violence against them. Say, no Christian would ever take away from the, the Bible that we're to do terrible things to the Jewish people. Uh, that would, uh, no, nowhere would be found in Scripture that we're to be violent towards any kind of other group. If we can't hate other groups of people, part of what it means to be a Christian, right? We read in the catechism, every person's made in the image of God. So let's not commit the anachronism when we read this of taking all the subsequent history where the Bible has been distorted in human sinfulness and allow that to determine really what's happening in the text. Secondly, why is this not an anti-Semitic text? Paul himself is a Semite. Uh, I know there's a lot there, you know, the, the self-loathing Jew, lots of literature on this kind of thing, but if you read the entire Pauline corpus, all of his letters, Paul loves the Jewish people. The best place to read about this would be in Romans chapter 9, right at the opening. You remember what he says? He's being rhetorical, but he says, if only my fellow Jews would believe in their Messiah, I myself would be accursed. If only they would believe in Jesus. Paul loves his people. He's committed to his people. He wants to see them come to their Savior. In fact, you know this word that we say a lot every Sunday, Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Greek word for Messiah, that's the Hebrew, which is a really technical term. It means Israel's anointed king. The word Messiah means Israel's anointed king. We're recognizing Jesus as Israel's anointed king. All the Hebrew Bible, when it says there's gonna be a future king who comes, who's gonna, there's gonna be a widespread redemption in this future king, we're saying Jesus is Israel's anointed king come. And Paul's saying, I really would love, love it if the Jewish people 
could see that we're actually a part of their story. So Paul, the author, is a Semite. He loves the Jewish people. We need to read everything that he writes, not take one thing out of context. Thirdly, Paul's frustration here, does it have to do with their ethnicity, or is he really making a theological point? See, I would say that he's making a theological point. He's saying that Jesus is the way by which we're saved, and the Jewish people are not allowing this message to go out. It's not the point that, oh, they're Jewish, therefore they're bad. He's saying, no, they've hindered this message of the crucified Messiah. It's the same way in the 16th century. Martin Luther, you take him out of context, he says some bad things about the Jewish people, but you have to see it's not ethnic-based, it's theological differences that are at stake here. That's his point, that the Jewish people are blocking, you see what they're doing, they're hindering the message of Jesus from going forth. That's the real issue, that they don't want the name of Jesus to go out. Lastly, this line about wrath, God's wrath coming upon the Jewish people, I hope you see now that God's wrath is upon every person until we get right with him. Back to 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. Well, I can start from 9. How these Thessalonians turn from God, from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for this son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the, the wrath to come. Every one of us, we've gone our own way. We've all violated the, just, the justice of God, that we all deserve the just judgment of God, that God will not allow sin and rebellion to go unpunished. That's part of what it means to be a just judge. So both the pagan Gentile Thessalonians have incurred the wrath of God, and yes, both the, the Jewish people as well have incurred the wrath of God. So not, he's not picking on this one group. Really what's at stake here is that Paul knows that there's one way to be right with God, that God has acted in history through Jesus, and the worst thing we can do is block the advancement of this good news that we can repent. All people, whoever believes and repents, can be right with God. That's what's at stake here. And Paul's showing them the big picture here by going to the prophets and Jesus. Say, you Thessalonians, you Gentile Thessalonians, you've believed, you're afflicted, guess what? You're in good company. This is what it means to be a part of God's family. It's hard, but you're on the right track. Keep going. Now, what about our own context? You know, you're thinking about this. Say, what... You know, this seems a far stretch. We don't know it's a time of more, more violence than, than our own time, thank God. But I hope we do see there's a real effort in our culture to dampen the message of Jesus from going out. So if I may, just cultural observation here. Have you seen now recently this uh, idea, or the, this case, it went before the Supreme Court, it was a 9-0 case, rare these days, but of the, the flags in front of the Boston City Hall. Do you know what I'm talking about? So the Boston City Hall flies three flags. The U.S. flag, the state of Massachusetts flag, and on the third flagpole, they said, well, we'll allow different groups to fly their flag there. So 50 different groups from all over Boston were able to fly their flags. They this kind of group and this kind of group, and you believe this about sexuality, you believe that, and, and all those groups, they could fly their flag. That's great. Until one group asked for their flag to go up. Can we put up the Christian flag? That flag's not going up. Now, thankfully, the Supreme Court, as I said, unanimously said that that City Hall was wrong and the Christian flag could be flown, but you say something's going on there. It's a deliberate, any message you want, no matter how incoherent, except that one. It's dampening the name of Jesus. You can't have it go out. Now, more than, say, another example, but 
I've never read a Bible in a hotel, I don't think. Uh, you know, in the drawer there, you had the Bible. Probably not, not many of us go for that. You might travel with your own Bible. But to think that for many, many years in our country that this was not a controversial thing to do, that Gideons would put the Bibles in the drawers of a hotel room. You're in a tough spot. You're on the road. You got the Book of Hope ingrained into to our culture. This is the book that, uh, you know, the principles of our country are founded on God's Word. They're in the hotel rooms. Well, now you see real jitters about that. You got to get those Bibles out of those hotel rooms. You say, that'd be just too much, a bit too keen on the Jesus stuff. Say, how about the coach praying in the state of Washington? You remember that one? So, football coach says, boys, after the game, I'm going to go out on the field and pray. And any one of you boys wants to pray with me, you can come. Say, lots of backlash. What I'm getting at is it would seem to me it would seem to me that this, to God, is one of the most grievous offenses that can be committed by us. To say we know he's acted in history through Jesus, that it's open to all who hear to repent and believe on him, and there are those who, like you push the garbage down, are suppressing it, hindering the very thing by which we, the only thing by which we can be saved. So if you feel that a little bit, say, well, it feels like we're just, you know, kind of generally getting pushed down. Say, guess what? You're in good company. That's what we're dealing with here. So Paul cites this passage to the Thessalonians. They've believed. They've been afflicted. Guess what? This is the way it is. There's a long pattern of suffering, both because of the uh, rebellion of our forefathers and each of us going our own way, and also because this is what it means to acknowledge Jesus as king. Now, second bold heading there is that there are two outcomes in our passage to this kind of affliction, two possible consequences, uh, one negative and one positive. First, you can see how Satan, how Satan uses tough things to destroy uh, a nascent faith. So if you'll notice in verse 18 of chapter 2, Paul really wants to come check in on them to reinforce them, to encourage them, and Satan hindered us. The same word back in verse 16, right? Hindering us, that there's a block uh, for gospel ministry to take place. But maybe more importantly, chapter 3 and verse 5, he was longing to know their faith. He sent Timothy for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be, be in vain. So in other words, Satan would see the affliction of these young Christians, the hard things they're enduring, and pivot their mind to seeing that God's in control and that Jesus is worth following to break down their faith and to steal away whatever faith is there. The best image, I think, of, of what we, we see here might be in the parable of the sower. You can read in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15. You remember what happened? The, the word goes forth, hey, come to Jesus. Anybody here, you're not a Christian, repent, believe on Jesus. It's really good news. You can be right with God. Join a church family. Have a new purpose in your life. Come, follow Jesus. And some will say, oh, that is what I need. In this crazy world, I, I see in Jesus something that's not anywhere else. And for a moment, you're about to say, I'm going to become a Christian. And what happens? Satan comes in and steals up that seed. And whatever was there, maybe a comment from a friend, a little sneer, something goes wrong in your life, and you say, oh, there's nothing to it. And Satan snatches that seed away. That's what Paul's worried about here. Oh, there's such young Christians. Satan's on the prowl. He's blocking the message. He knows how to twist the hard things in life to grasp up the faith and to stomp it out. Now, I know what you're thinking there. I read verse 18. You say, well, 
I can't believe this guy. I mean, you know, is this really what we need with mass inflation and political gridlock to be talking about Satan? If you think Satan is a small little red guy with a trident, you could say, well, yep, Shaw's a little off. But who's Satan in Scripture? Satan is God's enemy whose primary objective is to dampen and distort belief in Jesus because he wants to discredit God and make sure God doesn't get glory. How is God glorified? By coming to him through Jesus. And if that's who Satan is, which he is in Scripture, he's quite successful. He's around, his demons are around every day, dampening faith. Oh, that bad thing happened? Well, don't you know, yeah, God's not really in it. It's like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. Your life should be good. You should be happy. Using those kinds of little comments, those little sneers. Oh, yeah, Christian, nobody's going to believe that anymore. It's all coming down. It's all fraud. That's how Satan works. You know, for an example, you might, I was debating whether or not to, to share this. I hope it's helpful in the sense of cultural analysis and never comes across as, as picking on anybody or making judgments. I'm just trying to say, you're looking at the same world I am. So where, where do you see this really happening? Can you give us? I think with somebody like Joshua Harris, if you know this name, Joshua Harris in 1997 was a very young man, 21 years old. And he wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it really was an effort to uh, buttress what we now call the purity culture in the church. Personally, I think it went a bit far. Um, It was probably uh, a bit on the legalistic side. But a very young man, book sells millions, uh, 1.2 million copies of this book go out. He then, again, as also a very young man, becomes the head pastor of a church of many thousands. Um, So he's got this platform. And what begins to happen is he, he sees, you know, in this climate that the whole purity culture thing is really uh, maybe not the right way to go, and he probably did overstate a few things in the book, and the, and the pressure of leading the church and a little bit of embarrassment because of the book starts to go to work on him, and, and he announces in a, a series of tweets or whatever, uh, you know, he pumps it out there, he says, you know, I regret writing my book. Now, no nuance in that, not saying, well... Christian sexual ethics are different, and I was trying to say he didn't just, you know, kind of bring it back in a more nuanced way from when he wrote it when he was 21, which I think would have been a perfectly acceptable thing to do. So he says, I I regret writing the book on, you know, conservative Christian sexual ethics. A little bit later, he says, I'm leaving my wife. And a little bit later, he says, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm out. And he's deconstructing. Now, something in this young man at one point in his life, he was really a committed Oh, I should say, he, he was really drawn to Jesus. There was something in him that, there was something there. And the cultural pressures, and perhaps using the tough things that came from being a little out front of himself on his skis, that Satan used what he had did to steal away whatever interest there was there in faith. As we've talked before about election, you, once you're a Christian, you can't not be a Christian, that we believe in an unconditional election, that God gives us a new heart. We'd say Joshua Harris, uh, from all we can tell, was never a Christian. But I think it's safe to say at one point he's very interested in doing, advancing the name of Jesus. And because of the pressures and the difficult things and a few mistakes that Satan got in and stripped away whatever hope was there, to the great detriment of the kingdom and to the, you know, the disgrace of the, the name of Jesus. So that's the kind of thing I think is happening here, what Paul's worried about. When there's hard things in life, 
that result from little efforts in the Christian ministry do we begin to, to doubt them when hard things come. Now, God's purpose, so that's one way, the hindrance of Satan, the tempter uh, stealing away the faith, uh, the, the beginning of faith, uh, but gloriously then there, there's far more predominant in the Bible and in church history would be to see suffering for Christ as redemptive. Maybe no better example, Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And you have many other verses that talk that way. Say, when a Christian faces hardship for sincerely following Jesus, that God uses those hard things that come our way to build in a kind of character, to give us a kind of strength, not only to uh, bolster our, our own commitment to Jesus, but also to minister to the church family, to say God will use it to his glory and to the good of others. Now, I'll leave this comment for you to talk this week, but I, I think non-Christian materialists really want their suffering to be redemptive. They do. They say, well, I suffer and I can still be a good example to others. Fair enough. But what Paul's saying here is that the, the, there's a great gap in Christian redemptive suffering because we're in the business of, of molding each other insofar as we're looking not only for the life here, which is all the materialist has, but for the life to come, which is why this passage and really this whole letter is framed around the future coming of Jesus. What Paul's saying is the hardship you're facing now, you Thessalonians, that God will use that to give you a, a kind of backbone, a kind of sturdiness that you might reinforce one another uh, and build each other up to know that in, in hardship that God is at work. An example of this, I was, we, Mallory and I had a lunch this week with Sister Cheryl Murtha. She was here the, the first hour and she gave me the line from Elizabeth Elliot. She said, suffering is never for nothing. And if you know Elizabeth Elliot, uh, her husband, first husband, was killed by the people he was trying to share the good news of Jesus with. Second husband died of cancer. So she writes a lot about this kind of thing. A lot of us in this congregation, you've said you face some terrible things. You say you're, you're on the rails, you're following Jesus and just face a hard thing. And you found rather than Satan snatching it up and uh, making you turn from faith, actually God has used that to allow your roots to grow deeper and you've even found yourself ministering to others far more common. God uses suffering and hardship in the life of the believer for redemptive purposes. And that's the truth. Now, point number three. So what are the moves we've made? Paul wants these Thessalonians to see they're in this stream, this long stream of suffering and facing hardship and stigmas for Jesus, that there are two outcomes when um, someone interested in faith faces affliction, either Satan uses that uh, to, to pervert the mind and to say, oh, it's all, it's all fake and I'm out, or God will use it to strengthen and to minister to others always in light of eternity. Two outcomes. And then third point, really the takeaway and um, the title for the sermon, we must prepare in advance for future hardships. Reminds me of that quote, say to college students, at the crucial moment of choice, most of the choosing's already done. <laughs> Say, when you find yourself in a tough arena and you say, well, I don't know what to do. I've never thought about this. Say, it's probably already too late. You're going to go with your impulses. Say, we wake up one day. Say, I didn't know this was part of the deal. You know, this is a hard thing that I'm facing. Say, well, it's part of the deal. Have a look again at chapter 3, and I'll start in verse 3 and read 4. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, notice the continuous, 
we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. What is, when Paul, when he first preached there, ladies and gentlemen, this is a tough business. This isn't exactly, you know, a fluffy, a fluffy endeavor. You think everything's going to be great. You'll be, you know, happy and rich. Or is this a great adventure? A great adventure where we're running a race and there's some really hard things on the race, but we're doing it for Jesus, that we are to prepare in advance for hardship to come. What kinds of things? Well, as I already said, culturally, feels like we're losing. Say maybe disappointments and those around us leaving the faith, those kinds of things are going to be among us. A little bit more of a stigma at work, you know, you're one of those kind and and just a little bit more uncomfortable. Guess what again? You're in good company, but we prepare now for hardship. And this is where spiritual formation in the life of of a church family comes into play. Are we formed spiritually from a 25-minute talk on a Sunday morning? No, not, not not primarily. That we will form each other in the thousands of interactions that we have as a church family listening to each other's lives, finding out what's really happening, reinforcing each other, sharing our past burdens and our hurts when we've suffered and we're reinforcing, doubling down, yes, that what is to be a Christian. Let's build each other up and advance the name of Jesus. We prepare in advance for the hard things that come in the future. That's what Paul did. That's what we do. So when the day comes, you know, I don't know, Providence churches shut down. Guess what? You know, we go to house churches. We keep lifting up the name of Jesus. You know, one day I'm not here because I do a certain kind of wedding. I don't know, but you're going to keep going. It's going to be good because God's in control. That's what this is about. Preparing now mentally for the tough things that are going to come, faithfully and cheerfully following Jesus, always being for what we're for, not what we're against. So again, friends, we're in a long pattern of God's people suffering. We're in that stream. There are two outcomes from the hard things of life. Either Satan will use those to dampen our faith, there we say, to steal it away when the seeds are just barely in the soil, or rather it's going to strengthen us and to strengthen us as a church family. We aim for that one. And lastly, we prepare now for the tough things in the future, knowing God uses suffering in the lives of his people to strengthen our faith, to minister to others. I'll pray. Father, we do see the pattern, believing on your name, facing affliction, and doing so with joy. That is not a work that can be conjured up from the bottom up, dig down deeper and pretend, oh yeah, this is all grand, but rather it's a work of you, of your spirit, that we would see there's things on the cultural horizon that are just, boy, it's intimidating, can feel like we're losing, sad. But as we form one another through the thousands of interactions we can have on a weekly basis as a church family, that we would build each other up to full maturity in the faith, And when each one of us in our own way faces the hardships that come in this life, even on the Christian journey, that we would be there to to build in in true faith. So we commit this time to you. Help it to sink in. Help us to meditate on your word even this week. And as we sing this great hymn that you, um, Lord, are not a God indifferent to human suffering, but entered into it and took the shame and took took the punishment we deserve. We, We honor you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.